it is, it's a magical estate. You can see why Agatha Christie fell in love with it. Nothing turns out in the way you thought it would. Do you feel special being back there? Absolutely, because I spent my youth reading Agatha Christie and then reading about Greenway House and looking at photos, never for one minute thinking, A, that I would ever get to see it because it was still in private hands, and B, not in my wildest dreams did I ever think I would be bringing people around it or I would be advising the National Trust about what to do with this or that, or that I would be living here. I mean, I lived here and it was literally like Lord of the Manor because there was a housekeeper and there was gardeners and there was a staff and the very first day that I was here I was working on the notebooks and the housekeeper came to say that my dinner was ready and what would I like to choose a bottle of wine so I had a wonderful time and especially at weekends you could really imagine you were Lord of the Manor because the staff weren't here um, and the National Trust staff weren't here so I literally had the place to myself so I would, it was summer so I would quite often, after I had done a day's work on the papers, I would take an Agatha Christie and go and sit in the top garden, which is literally at the top of the estate, and it looks out over the River Dart, and it was a glorious summer's evening, and you're sitting there thinking, I'm Lord of the Manor. This is Dubliner John Curran at Agatha Christie's old summer house in Devon, Greenway House. He's just written a book about the crime novels of Agatha Christie, someone who's been in his life for a very long time. For the last 45 years since I started to read, she's been a part of my life. Quite recently I was at an Agatha Christie play in London and I went with a group of friends and we went around to meet the cast afterwards and I was talking to one of them and she was talking to me about Agatha Christie and after a while she said to me, you know an awful lot about Agatha Christie and I said, well, to be honest, I'm a bit of an anorak about Agatha Christie and one of my friends interrupted and said, John, you're not a bit of an anorak, you're the anorak about Agatha Christie. Are you proud of that title? Um, well, I am, yes, because whether or not I ever wrote a book or whether I was given permission to use her papers, I am a huge fan of detective fiction in general and Agatha Christie in particular. I think she was the greatest exponent of the detective story. So the fact that now my name is becoming associated with the greatest exponent of the detective story, a a name which has 75% recognition throughout the world as the most translated writer. Yes, I'm very proud of that fact. She's innocent and that I could always be sure of that. That is what I want you to prove. But why Hercule Poirot, mademoiselle? I've heard about you. The way you work. It's psychology. My success is founded on psychology. Or the why of human behaviour. It is this that I use. I like to think it's not an obsession, but it is a, a deep interest. And quite possibly, you're right, if it wasn't Agatha Christie, it would be something else. Eh bien, monsieur Blake. The truth has the habit of revealing itself. Instinctively, you might say, oh, well, I think that little old lady is too good, too sweet to be wholesome. I think that's who the killer is. But that's not playing the game. You should be able to say, well, I think the little old lady did it because she said she was in such and such a place at four o'clock, whereas we know she couldn't have been because she told somebody else something else. So you, it's a case of spotting the information that you've been given by the writer. John's fascination with Agatha Christie has taken him on a journey from Inchicore Public Library all around the world 
and ultimately to Agatha's house in Devon, where he would uncover one of the last remaining unsolved Agatha Christie mysteries. Um, most of the mysteries of Agatha Christie's life have now been solved um, as a result of the 50-odd books that have been written about her. But one mystery that was never solved was what happened to the final labour of Hercules, which didn't appear in the Strand magazine in 1939. The mystery for Christie fans, including myself, had been that the Strand magazine only published 11 of them. The 12th one had never appeared for, for reasons that nobody could understand. Though more dedicated than most, John is one of millions of Agatha Christie fans worldwide. Christie, known as the Queen of Crime, is the best-selling novelist in history. She wrote over 100 novels, short stories and plays, including 87 starring the diminutive Belgian detective Hercule Poirot. The famous Hercule Poirot. Poirot, monsieur. Hercule Poirot. 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 Could never get my tongue around French. But I am Belgian, monsieur, not French. And it was one of these Poirot stories that took 70 years to come to light. When I found this missing short story, that wasn't just a highlight, that was the highlight of my life, <laughs> to go back to my anorak analogy. Behind the front door of a normal Dublin home, Possibly the greatest collection of detective fiction and Agatha Christie paraphernalia in the country has been amassed. It is truly a labour of love, built up over years and meticulously catalogued and organised. Agatha Christie filing cabinets, and they're all just various bits and pieces. You know, Agatha Christie board games, Agatha Christie jigsaws, Agatha Christie mugs, Agatha Christie key rings. So these, again, this is all Agatha Christie, and these are all the books about Agatha Christie of which, I, as far as I know, I have a copy of everything that's been written about her. I mean, this year alone, there were three new books about her. How so, many books do you have in here? Oh, I have about 10,000. But these are the originals from way back in Short Trousers. And these are... John lives alone, and three full rooms in the house are given over to books, film and play scripts, videos, recordings, posters, jigsaws, mugs, all related to Agatha Christie and crime fiction. I'll just show you the video and audio. Well, this, I call this the library, and most of my friends call this the library, because there's, it's a room, it was a bedroom in the house, and now there's absolutely nothing else except shelving on the wall. I've even, if you notice, taken down the door, because the door took up valuable shelf space, so there's now no door, and where there was a door, there's now a couple of hundred books. Well, you know, I am pleased with it, and that's why I keep the curtains drawn, because the sun does terrible, terrible damage to book covers as I know to my cost in the early days. So, very broadly, it's divided into paperback and hardback. Um, this is the Agatha Christie section of it, with the last three or four paperback issues of the entire Agatha Christie collection. Then This collection has been 40 years in the making. It began when John started reading Agatha Christie as a little boy. There was a dead silence for a minute and a half. Then I laughed. You're mad, I said. No, said Poirot placidly. 
I am not mad. It was a little discrepancy in time that first drew my attention to you, right at the beginning. I would read anywhere and under any circumstances because I remember years ago, and I could even tell you which Agatha Christie it was, it was a murderer's announced and I just got it from the library. Um, and then, of course, it was lights out at whatever, half nine. But I remember finishing, I was so intrigued, I remember finishing the murder of Roger Ackroyd by the streetlight. I went and sat by the window to find out who done it in a murderer's announced by the streetlight. So I would read under any circumstances and I would quite often visit the library two and three times a week and change books that often to devour them, yeah. Five minutes walk. All along I realised that we'd only your statement for it, that the study windows were ever fastened. Ackroyd asked you if you had done so. The whole concept of Agatha Christie and the fact of this mystery that, that had to be solved fascinated me so that when I ran out of Agatha Christie's in my local library, I moved on and read other crime writers. Um, and I read them to this day, but I keep going back to Agatha Christie because she did it better longer and more often than any of those other writers. I hear you climbing in, and then there would have been a struggle. But supposing that you killed Ackroyd before you left, as you were standing beside the summer house, take Ralph Fane's shoes out of the bag. One of the attractions for lots of people, myself included, about Agatha Christie is the fact that they are somewhat divorced from reality. Um, you know, you have this idea of a perfect um, setting and then murder interrupts it and the detective is called in to restore order, which is what he does in, in essence. That's the psychological explanation for why people like this type of fiction. Um, so in a way, even though they, the plots are realistic in the sense that, yes, you could imagine them feasibly happening, they're not gruesome or they're not realistic in that sense of the word. I mean, there's nothing nasty anybody could read them and you're not going to suffer from nightmares or you're not going to be appalled or disgusted. And so you sat and posed and chatted and waved to Meredith Blake. Oh, you played your part beautifully. Bloody rheumatism. Well, Amir's Crail painted on and on until his limbs failed and his speech thickened and he lay sprawled there on the bench, helpless with his mind still clear. As I say to friends of mine, I prefer my, my murders in civilised surroundings so that I'm not really interested in bodies found in, in alleyways or, or drug pushers dying of over, overdoses or pimps and prostitutes and all that sort of thing. I like a body on the, on the library, a body in the library or in one of Agatha Christie's, a body found in the study of the vicarage. John's love of reading defined his life from an early age, including his first job. So when I left school, I worked for a few years in the public libraries. I worked in Inchicore Library and most of the staff actually knew me because I was such a regular customer of theirs that I, I was as well. They didn't have to train me in what to do because I knew exactly what to do. And it, it was great to get because then I managed to get all the new whodunits before they went on the shelf. Until recently, he worked in the motor tax office, but his real passion was outside work. For the last 10 or 15 years, all my annual leave has been spent doing Agatha Christie type things, you know, going to Devon, going to, I've been a few times to Tenerife where they have an Agatha Christie festival. I went to Calgary where they had an Agatha Christie. I visited David Sushi on the set in Morocco when he was filming Appointment with Death. So all my holidays have been spent doing something associated with some aspect of Agatha Christie. I'm just back from Japan where there was an Agatha Christie exhibition just launched. Despite the fact that John is now doing a PhD on Agatha Christie, she has never been considered a particularly highbrow writer. You write so well, Agatha, dear, my mother-in-law used to say to me. And because you write so well, surely you ought to write something serious. 
Something worthwhile was what she meant. Something that she herself was conscious of in one of the few recordings of her voice. I would find it very difficult to explain to her, and indeed did not really try. But I was eminently a writer for entertainment. I wanted to be a good detective story, writer, yes. And indeed, I was conceited enough to think by this time that I was quite a good detective story writer. Some of my books satisfied and pleased me. They never pleased me entirely, of course, but I don't suppose that is what one ever achieves. everyone around you all that they kind of they knew that you had this sort of obsession ah poor john um well i have to say there is a huge amount of satisfaction both from the personal level but also because people i know through the years thought well he reads agatha christie but as i keep saying to him well who's having the last laugh now um you know because of agatha christie i've been to all these places in the world and i've spoken at the oxford literary festival or at agatha christie so i am having the last laugh did people tease you about it before? Oh, they did, because, I mean, Agatha Christie, until about the last 10 or 15 years, was almost considered like sort of a grown-up's version of Enid Blyton. No, I have lots of friends who I, I know think I'm a bit sad because I read Agatha Christie. And I know that, and they know that I know. But, um, well, I mean, I, I can quote... I mean, T.S. Eliot was an Agatha Christie fan. Sigmund Freud was an Agatha Christie fan. Um, at the time of that, her fiftieth novel was published. Included in it was a little, a little um, pamphlet from all the great and the good of the UK, including the royal family and the prime minister at the time, um, saying what big fans of Agatha Christie they were. So, I mean, I'm in very good company being an Agatha Christie fan. But there was still the matter of that missing Poirot story. Agatha Christie wrote about 150 short stories, and at the time. Hundreds of other writers, literally hundreds of other writers, and many of them crime writers, also wrote short stories because it was a huge magazine market, specifically in the UK, but in lots of other countries as well. So at one stage in the 30s, there were over 600 magazines, and these were available in bookshops, and also to a large extent, and they're still there today, um, bookstalls in most of the big railway stations. So people bought a magazine for the the train journey. And at the turn of the century, there were hundreds of people coming into London every day to work in in offices and, and buildings throughout the city of London. And lots of them would spend sometimes a shilling, but sometimes it was a mere sixpence for a magazine with, a, with maybe a dozen stories in it. So it was a very lucrative market for a lot of writers, including Agatha Christie. So she wrote... Well, she wrote two novels and then she wrote a series of Hercule Poirot short stories which were first published in a magazine which is long gone now. But in 1939, the Strand magazine paid her for a series of 12 short stories featuring Hercule Poirot. And she came up with the idea of using the 12 labours of Hercules from Greek myth. But the mystery, until very recently, for Agatha Christie fans the world over was why did only 11 stories appear? Because there are, there were 12 original labours of Hercules. So there was one mystery still outstanding. 70 years later, John went on a trip that would lead to the unravelling of that mystery. Six years ago, I went to Calgary, um, way on the far side of Canada, because they were doing the first ever stage production of an Agatha Christie play. So I decided 
I was going to go because I knew that if I didn't and I woke up in Dublin the morning after the first performance, I'd regret not having gone. So I went and staying at the same hotel was Agatha Christie's grandson, only grandchild, Matthew. And when we came back, he invited me down to Greenway House, which was Agatha Christie's holiday home. Thoughts come to one at such odd moments when you are walking along the street and examining a hat shop with particular interest. Suddenly a splendid idea comes into your head and you think, now that would be a very neat way of covering up the crime so that nobody would guess too soon. In her recordings, Agatha left a clue about what John would find in Greenway House. slowly into your consciousness, but at any rate, you do jot it down for an exercise book. So far, so good. But what I invariably do is to lose the exercise book. I usually have about half a dozen on hand, here and there, and I used to make little notes in them for ideas that had struck me, or sometimes some particular poison or drug, or a clever little bit of swindling that one reads about in the paper. He showed me all over the house, and we, I remember we came back down to the hall, and he said, now, John, go wherever you like and look at whatever you want. And he went off about his business, so... I went straight back upstairs to this little room at the top of the stairs which had effectively the history of Agatha Christie's writing career because in this room were all her contracts, manuscripts, letters, fan mail, um, first editions of her books, paperback editions, film posters, playbills, signed programmes and this very, very unimpressive cardboard box with 73 notebooks and I realised that these were the notebooks of Agatha Christie. It's a summer's day on the English Riviera in Devon. A busload of American crime fiction fans are on a mystery tour. A tour of English mystery writers. And a special guest has just boarded the bus. The felt of all knowledge as far as I'm concerned here. In fact, we have the felt of all knowledge. We have uh, a guest on board. We have John Curran, uh, who's come from Ireland. He's going to be attending the Crime Fest. Um, is a, a key... Uh, speaker at the first and uh, he has recently published uh, a definitive work as far as I can see on uh, Agatha Christie's works and has been intimately involved with the um, restoration of Agatha Christie's house uh, Greenway which we are visiting this afternoon. Good morning, everybody. Just before we leave the Grand Hotel, to let you know that this is where Agatha Christie spent her honeymoon. She married Archie Christie on Christmas Eve 1914, and room 216 is still called the Agatha Christie Suite, although whether that's the actual room or not is open to debate, I would imagine. But um, that's the Grand Hotel's connection with Agatha Christie. And then shortly after that, Archie returned to World War One where he was very exotically in those days a pilot. So when we turn out onto the seafront, we're shortly... The bus takes John and the Americans to various Agatha Christie attractions around Torquay, finishing up at the stately Greenway House, which Christie used as the setting for the Poirot novel Five Little Pigs. His face was grey. He gasped out, We must get a doctor! Quick, Amius! I sprang up. Is he ill? Dying? Meredith said, I'm afraid he's dead. I remember the way. Every time I go to Greenway House, I enjoy it every single time. I never get tired of it. I've been there umpteen times now. 
and I still get a free sun as I go up the drive um, especially when I think that as you go up the drive you're passing your right hand side the gate lodge which is the gate lodge of Dead Man's Folly one of Hercule Poirot's adventures of when he go out onto the battery that's where Five Little Pigs happened but I mean, even leaving aside the Agatha Christie connection it's a beautiful setting it's a beautiful house beautiful gardens you're looking out over the river and on a nice day Agatha Christie herself said it's the most beautiful place in the world and I think she was probably right so I think this house figures in three books and why wouldn't it? I mean, yeah. it's just, it's magnificent. So our lives and days went on. Our happy, carefree life. This is where she spent her summers and holiday weekends and perhaps Christmas and Easter. And this is where her family, including the grandson Matthew, spent idyllic childhoods, you know, rambling around the gardens or playing in the tennis court or swimming at the river at the bottom of the garden. We're now walking down through Agatha Christie's garden from leaving from the house we're going down to the battery and to the boathouse to see where she used as a setting for Five Little Pigs and Dead Man's Folly. They were just sitting down, all but Amias who had remained down in the battery painting. Quite a normal So thing we're walking for him down do. quite a, a tre- steep treacherous path to the boathouse and the battery garden. And we're looking out over to our right is the River Dart. And isn't it magnificent? Can you imagine this on a lovely summer's sunny day? I just wandered at will in rain, hail and shine. When you say garden, people have an idea of, you know, beautiful lawns and flower beds. This was the garden, wild and it's a sort of woodland garden. When you switch the light out here, it is, you literally can't see the handle front of your face because it is pitch dark. I mean, if I was going out at night, I had to make sure to bring a torch with me because if I got a taxi back to the gate lodge, you, you couldn't see your feet. So, wow. so when you switch out the light and it's pitch dark and then you hear these noises that you can't identify, it was quite creepy at times, especially at weekends. I was here completely on my own. And the weekend would be Saturday, Sunday, Monday. So it was quite a long weekend. And here we are at the battery. This is, this is Five Little Pigs. Do you want to gather round, folks? For it is a devilish thing to do to poison a man in cold blood. If there'd been a revolver about and she'd caught it up and shot him, well, that might have been understandable. OK, so this is the battery garden. This was where Elsa sat and posed for Amias, so I'm not quite sure where you can speculate, and Amias was sitting there. And That's- so Elsa Greer sat on the grey wall and posed, and since she must keep him from suspecting until it was too late, she talked to Amias Crail brightly and naturally. And somewhere along that path was the crushed pipette with the poison in it. So you can see now this, this sketch makes more sense, because you can see the semicircular and the paths going up and down to the house. This one is actually the better sketch because that's Greenway mm-hmm. and there's the path and there's Miss W, which is Miss Williams, the governess. That's C, that's Caroline, that's Elsa coming up because if you remember, Elsa goes up to collect a pullover because she yeah. says, well, we know it's not just a pullover. Hercule Poirot gestured towards the picture on the wall. I should have known when I first saw that picture for it is a very remarkable picture. It is the picture of a murderous painted by her victim. It is the picture of a girl watching her lover die. (laughs) 
So while Hercule Poirot got to the bottom of the mystery that Agatha Christie set at Greenway House, John was doing his own detective work in a little messy room at the top of the same house. And what was it like going into that little room? It was incredible. And while I was doing it, I kept thinking, this is, this is, I'm dreaming this. And even now, looking back on it, I can still remember it exactly. Because we went down to Greenway House for the weekend. So we got there at, at around tea time on the Friday and we left at lunchtime on the Sunday. And in that period of time, I spent 24 hours in that room. And I remember Matthew standing at the bottom of the stairs, shouting up at me. His exact words were, John, you can stay up all night if you want, but you bloody well have to eat. Will you come down and have your dinner? So um, I had to be dragged out of the room because he had, he had arranged, you know, various social activities to meet other people and to go out for lunch. And he, he knew he was wasting his time because all I wanted to do was spend the time. So I did. I read every page of every notebook twice over that weekend and um, I had to be dragged away when it came to lunchtime on Sunday. Of course, I kept all these things neatly sorted and filed and labelled would have saved me a lot of trouble. But it is a great pleasure sometimes when you were looking through a haphazard pile of old notebooks to find something scribbled down and then a kind of sketch of a plot. There's something you've so much forgotten about that you can't even remember you ever wrote it down. But it stimulates one very much, if not to write that, then to write something else. So I... Be- it was just so incredible because I'd been reading these books for years <clears throat> and I'd admired them for years as the greatest body of detective fiction that had ever been written. And here I was looking at the notes that went into the creation of them and then notes that went into the creation of books that she never wrote and ideas that she didn't incorporate into the books that I did know so well. So the whole thing was so incredible because the earliest notebook goes back to 1907 so they're a huge part of literary history because Agatha Christie is an iconic figure, not just here in the UK and Ireland and Europe but all over the world she's she's the most translated writer ever and still is available in every bookshop and library in every corner of the world and here I was looking at her working notes it was just incredible still is in fact While I was researching the notebooks, I I lived in Greenway House on and off for about two months. And when the people in the house, the National Trust, got to know me, they asked me would I undertake the task of sorting and cataloguing and listing her papers because everything had to be removed from the house. So I, I went over there for one complete month and that's what I did. To be given that sort of privileged access is a dream come true and, you know, a fan could ask for nothing better. So one Saturday afternoon I was moving papers from their shelf in a cupboard into a box and I was going through them and I came across this story and I knew from the opening sentence that this wasn't a story with which I was familiar. Uh, Hercule Poirot sipped his aperitif and and looked out across the lake of Geneva. He sighed. He'd spent his morning talking to certain diplomatic personages, all in a state of high agitation, and he was tired, for he had been unable to offer them any comfort in their difficulties. As I read on, I realised this... Nobody had read this Agatha Christie short story ever. Um, And then as I read further, I realised this was the missing capture of Cerberus, the missing 12th labour of Hercules. And as I read further, I realised why it hadn't been published. So just to put it in perspective, this short story was 
in with a bundle of other short stories in a cupboard in Greenway House. And on the basis of the 11 other stories that were published, this was there since 1939, possibly from 12 months earlier, 1938. So it had been lying in amongst these papers for 70 years at least. And it was it had obviously been moved and lifted and taken from A to B within the cupboard numerous times over those years and sometimes, some of that time, probably by Agatha Christie herself and it had never come to light. Um, but then as I, as I read the story that Saturday afternoon, I realised why it hadn't been published. The other, pub- other stories were published, as I say, 1939, which was just coming up to the Second World War. And in the newly discovered story, um, it involves somebody making rabble-rousing speeches on the continent and rousing the youth of the country to a frenzy. His warlike utterances had rallied the youth of his own country and of allied countries. It was he who had set Central Europe ablaze and kept it ablaze. On the occasion of his public speeches, he was able to set huge crowds rocking with frenzied enthusiasm. His high, um, strange... And the person had the initials A.H. There was, it was true, also Bondolini, but it was upon August Hertzlein that popular imagination fastened. And then in case there was any lingering doubt whatsoever, he was described as having a small bullet-shaped moustache. Someone was coming down the ladder, a short man with a bullet head and a little dark moustache. He came down slowly and clumsily. At last he reached the ground... Hercule Poirot stepped forward into the moonlight. He said politely, Herr Hatzlein, I presume? So you don't have to be Hercule Poirot to work out where she was coming from. So uh, although we can't know for certain, I would imagine the Strand rejected as being literally politically incorrect for the time. But that Saturday afternoon... I was living in Greenway House and Saturday afternoon I had the place to myself. I was Lord of the Manor. And I mean, we're talking a Georgian mansion with 40 acres of ground. So there was nobody there to share this excitement with at all. So I took the manuscript and went and sat in Agatha Christie's armchair in Agatha Christie's drawing room and read an unknown adventure of Hercule Poirot that had sat on that shelf for over 60 years. So it was quite an amazing experience. And I'm very delighted and honoured that, that my book was the one that brought this to the waiting world. And I couldn't believe it. I mean, I still can't believe it when I look back on it. It's just so incredible. There were so many uh, um, emotions going through my mind because... At this, this was nineteen. Or sorry, this was two thousand and six, and the last Agatha Christie, the new, the last new Agatha Christie story, which was Miss Marple's last case, was published in nineteen seventy six. So we're talking there hadn't been a new Agatha Christie for thirty years, and there I was reading a new Agatha Christie story. Um, so I was feeling very chuffed. Needless to mark, I was fascinated and delighted that I was the one who found it. Oh, I'll never have a moment like that again. No, that's why I save it. And that's why when, when I realised what it was, and I mean, I was standing in the room, standing at the cupboard, shifting papers from A to B. And when I realised what I was looking at, I said to myself, and I savour this moment because this, 
doesn't happen very often in anybody's life, if ever. So it ha- it's been a huge adventure. I mean, for me, it's better than finding a, a new Shakespeare, um, because Agatha Christie's forty years dead, and nobody had ever thought there was going to be a new Agatha Christie. And in, she wrote an, a Christie for Christmas every year of her life. So we haven't had a new one now since nineteen seventy six until John Curran found one in Greenway House. And Agatha's life has enriched John's. To him, she's brought colour, mystery, story, travel and the belief that dreams can come true. I'm hoping to visit the Marple film set later on this year when they start doing the next season of of Marple. Um, I'm going to Istanbul in September because the Merge on the Orient Express... Agatha Christie wrote it, so the story goes, in the Pera Palace Hotel in Istanbul. There's a room there where Agatha Christie wrote Murder on the Orient Express. So Matthew and myself are going out for Agatha Christie's birthday, which is the 15th of September. So there's some sort of an event planned. And just before I do that, I'm speaking at the Agatha Christie Festival in Torquay, also that same week because it's Agatha Christie week. Um, I'm speaking at, a, I'm going to a crime convention in, in Bristol, um, talking about Agatha Christie and her notebooks and I'm doing another one in the north of England so I've you know, spoken with people uh, um, I've become friends with people and visited places that in the normal course of events I would never have visited and it's all thanks to Agatha Christie But one's thankfulness for the gift of life is I think stronger and more vital during those last 25 years than it ever has been before It has some of the reality and intensity of dreams I still enjoy dreaming enormously. I remember when reading books about Agatha Christie or articles, because there weren't very many books. The first book wasn't about her wasn't published until the late 60s. And I remember reading about Agatha Christie and Greenway House and looking at photographs of Greenway House and reading about Matthew and looking at photos of Matthew. And never in your wildest dreams would you think that you would not only just get to see these places and meet these people, but to become friends with them and to be a constant visitor. Because now when I go back to Greenway House, you know, all the people in Greenway House say, oh, hello, John, welcome back, nice to see you again. And even now, three or four years later, it's still a completely bizarre sensation. And Agatha Christie's grandson will will ring me to ask me my opinion on the new David Suchet television film or whatever. And you put the phone down and you think, you know, am I going to wake up shortly? If you enjoyed this documentary, you might like to listen to our other Documentary on One productions. Visit rte.ie forward slash doc on one.